Amen. Well, guess who forgot it was Valentine's Day, honey? I'd like to start my three-part apology. You're the most beautiful, wonderful. No, we knew it was Valentine's Day. That's not my wife's love language. Her love language is pure, unbridled obedience. <laughs> so she's, she's just lost all the way around, isn't she? <clears throat> Open uh, your Bibles with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 19, and we're going to be picking up in verse 14. Dad took all the good verses, just kidding. <laughs> I also left mom a box of chocolates on the bed. Oh, yes, thank you for that. <laughs> Let's start with a word of prayer things really get out of hand. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and uh, we are here today, Father, because you are so good. Uh, you are so gracious to us, Father. You're so loving and you're so merciful, Father, and we had no power or ability or way to save ourselves, Father. You reached down through the ages of time, Father, and through the, uh, the garments of the dimensions, and, and you reached our hearts, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and you sent him to show us exactly what it looks like to live a life in perfect obedience to your sovereign and holy will, Father, to walk every day and every moment of every day uprightly, Father, and in pure holiness before you, Father. You, you showed us through him what it looks like perfectly to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, Father, and to also uh, always speak the truth, Father, regardless of whether or not it's accepted by the world or, or, or not, Father. You showed us all of the good things that we could see, Father, as an object lesson through your son, Jesus Christ. And then you allowed him and he allowed himself, Father, to have his blood poured out for us, Father, to be nailed to a cross at Calvary so that uh, we could have that perfect propitiation of all of our sins, Father, that we could have that one, one-time sacrifice, Father, that would forgive us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, Father. And, and then you sent your Holy Spirit, the Comforter, Father, to the church, uh, Lord, that you could live inside of each one of us, Father, and that you could abound in these places when we gather together and that you could be present, Father, to speak to our hearts through your mighty word, Father. We're so thankful for the miracle uh, of that, Lord, and of the fellowship that we have. Father, we pray for every single person that's here physically, Father. We pray for every single person who's watching us on YouTube or, or Facebook, Father, or whatever, um, wherever they're watching or hearing this, Father. We pray that you would be present, Lord, with them today to touch them as well, Lord, to speak to their hearts. We pray that you would help us to be humble to be meek and to allow our hearts to be molded by you, Father, that we would not be hard of heart, but we would have hearts of clay, Father, and allow you to be the potter in our lives. Uh, Lord, speak to us this day and have your way in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 19. Uh, Dad went over this morning the, the cities of refuge. Um, and it's a very, very uh, interesting study. I encourage you to go back and listen to Dad's message if you weren't here this morning uh, and, and listen, listen to that teaching. The, 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 the cities of refuge were places that were given to the people who were involved in manslaughter, but it was not a deliberate act, and there's a whole bunch of object lessons that are there for us. Um, first and foremost, there is a price and a penalty that had to be paid 
for the shedding of blood, even if it was accidental. And it's just kind of this weird thing and hard for us with our sensibilities and the culture that we live in sometimes to understand some of these, these Eastern things that are going on in the, in the Old Testament. But there was an avenger of blood uh, that was prescribed for, in, for each case where a life was taken. And that avenger of blood, when they found out that their brother or their close kinsman or relative had been killed by another person, uh, they were expected by the family, and there was an allowance even within the law of God for them to go and take that person's life who took the life of their relative or of their kinsman. And God allowed for that. And, and, and okay, what's that all about? But then God set up these cities of refuge that a person who killed someone on accident and had to be an accident could flee to and take refuge. And as long as they were able, to, and, and there were the, the ways, the highways were to be made wide and kept clear, leading in all directions to these cities of refuge so that someone could clearly and easily see the way, find the way, and then move along the way to get to these cities of refuge so that the avenger of blood couldn't get to them first and kill them. And once they got to the city of refuge, they were safe there. The avenger of blood could not get to them, could not take their life as so long as they stayed there. If they came outside of the gates of a city of refuge, the avenger of blood could legally take their life. And they had to stay there until the death of the high priest. And then at that point in time, they would be made completely free and they could go back home to their land. Now, there's a few things that God is teaching us through that. And one is, is that there is a price for the taking of life. For, for, for our sensibilities and for our purposes in the day and age that we live in and for our lives as, as believers, there is a price for sin. There's always a price for sin. You know, we sin every single day, don't we? The very best among us, those of us who seek the most to walk as closely we can to that perfect example of Jesus Christ, still fall short every single day. And there is nothing that allows in the Bible for accidental sin. There's nothing in the Word of God or in God's law that winks at that or that says, well, that's okay because you didn't know. Sin is sin. And we use the example all the time. If you were driving down Kirkville Road down here and you were pulled over and the officer says, do you know why I pulled you over? I have no idea, officer. Well, you were going 55 in a 45. And you said, officer, I am so sorry. I never break the law. I am a law-abiding citizen. I always do the right things. I donate to the Policeman's Benevolence Association vast quantities of money. You know, I wake up in the morning and pray for police. First thing I do, you know. And he's going to say, well, I appreciate your lies, but here's the thing. <laughs> you broke the law. And it doesn't matter what your intentions were. And it doesn't matter how good of a person you may be. And it doesn't matter all of the wonderful things that you previously did before you broke the law or that you're going to do after you broke the law. The law has been broken and therefore a penalty, a price, has to be paid. And so just because a person, the example that we're given in Deuteronomy 19 is you're out in the woods you know, cutting, chopping wood with your buddy, and you throw that axe back, and the axe head flies off the thing and lands right on your buddy's noggin, kills him dead. And even though that was maybe your friend, and even though it was completely done un un uh, intentionally, there still was a killing that happened. And there still is a price that has to be paid. 
And so the avenger of blood exists. Now you could escape the avenger of blood so long as you were careful and diligent to do what God's word said and get yourself to the city of refuge. And once you were there in the city of refuge, if you were careful and diligent to keep yourself within the city of refuge, because if you began to say to yourself, I miss home, this isn't fair, I don't agree with this, I don't think this is how things should be, and you left the city of refuge, you were open season to be killed by the avenger of blood until the high priest died. Now, this is such a beautiful archetype and such a beautiful analogy for you and I of what we have in Jesus Christ. Remember, the old te- what we call the Old Testament, okay? The New Testament is like 80% of it is almost is a direct quotation of something in the Old Testament, all right? There really is no Old Testament. That's just what we call it. Okay, but basically you can sum up the Bible into two parts, and we say this all the time. The Old Testament, Jesus is coming, and the New Testament, Jesus is here. And so all of these, so many of these laws and ceremonies and cities of refuge are just a beautiful picture for us of what we have in Jesus Christ. Like it or not, mean it or not, no matter how well-meaning you may be and how good of a person, wonderful of a person you may be, you are still a lawbreaker. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus Christ and he says, good teacher, Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. So when somebody is telling you or saying to you, I'm a good person or they're a good person, understand that depends upon which economy you're speaking from. If you're speaking from man's economy, they may well be a good person. It's comparative. But if you're speaking from God's economy, there is no one who is righteous. There is no one who is good. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there is one prescribed way. We must flee to the city of refuge. And Jesus Christ is our city of refuge. And the beautiful thing about the city of refuge is that you had to stay there until the death of the high priest. Again, Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews teaches us this. He is not only the sacrifice, but he is also our high priest. He is our intercessor. And when he died on the cross, he became both our refuge and the freedom by which we were made free. I love that. If you're free in him, you are free indeed. It's a beautiful thing. So, as we move down now into verse 14, God is getting into some more practical things here in dealing, and again, all of chapter 19 is dealing with your neighbor, dealing with your neighbor. You know, it's such a, I mean, we take it for granted because we know it and we read it and and it seems like something that we've known our whole lives, but you understand how mind-blowingly, earth-shatteringly incredible it was for that philosophy that Jesus brought to, to the people when he said to them, all of the law and the prophets are summed up in two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, which is like the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, upon these two commandments, all the law and the prophets hinge. It's all summed up in that. Well, it's very, very important that we understand, however, that the first commandment is the first commandment. The second may be like the first, but it cannot precede the first, nor can it exist without the first. 
If you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, my friends, you cannot love your neighbor as yourself, even with your relationship with God. It ain't easy, right? It's so simple. You wake up in the morning, you read your devotion, you have your coffee, and you're just, you're just whispering, God is so good. And you're going out, oh, and it's just like, everything's going wonderful. There's just no reason for you to complain. And then you get to traffic. And here comes this guy, and he's going 100 miles an hour in the slow lane, right? Or he's going 10 miles an hour in the hammer lane, right? And you come flying up on him, and then he cuts off in front of you, and he flips you the bird, the one-finger wave, as we call it, and you say to yourself, I want you to die, <laughs> right? And then you realize, and then you realize something within yourself. This ain't easy. Now, here's the difference between a follower of Jesus Christ and someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ. We have the same hearts. Make no mistake about it, okay? We have still these bodies of flesh, and we still have these visceral reactions that come up within us. Here's the difference. When that comes up in you, you can claim what you have in Jesus Christ. That he has set me free from the members of my own body, which are at war against my spirit. You know, as Paul said, there's this war going on in my, in, inside of me. The things I want to do, I don't do. It's the things I don't want to do. Those are the things I keep doing. And there's this war that's going on inside of me. Who's going to rescue me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And so now, when that rage comes up with inside of me, I can then stop myself and say, oops, that's right, Lord, I forgot. I don't have to be angry like that anymore. I don't have to get revenge on this person. You ever have somebody blow past you, and then a couple miles down the road, they're pulled over by the police? You know how gracious you feel? Oh, that's too bad. That's sorry. Lord... Lord, I pray the cop wouldn't be too hard on him. I hope he lets him go with a warning this time. I hope he puts him in jail for manslaughter. You know what I mean? But Jesus Christ has set you free from that, my friends. He has set you free from that. You do not have to marinate in your flesh anymore. You are set free from all of that. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. But without a relationship with God, you cannot have these things. You cannot understand these things. The Bible says the natural man knows not the things of God. They're spiritually discerned, the things of God, and the natural man cannot discern them. You can have the most brilliant professor that has ever walked the face of the planet, go through the Bible and study it and be able to read it in its original languages and they will never understand or know about the word of God that the simplest among us can know because it's the Holy Spirit who interprets it. It is the Holy Spirit that speaks from these pages and shows it to be true in your heart and in your life and allows you to not only hear these words, but be doers of these words, as Jesus said. It is a supernatural transaction that is taking place. And so here God is dealing with them in terms of manslaughter, and now he's moving on to some smaller things, but nevertheless, all of 19, dealing with your neighbor. And I said all of what I just said to say this. All of 19, if you are a person who loved Jehovah and were seeking to follow him with all your heart, none of these things are going to be a problem for you. You know when we have problems? 
You know when we start to have problems? When Frank Thomas's will becomes to be preeminent. Frank Thomas's will being done is of the utmost importance. And immediately, I'm out of tune with the Spirit, and therefore, I cannot love people appropriately. I cannot love them the way God has called me to love them. Chapter 19, verse 14 says this. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in your inheritance which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. He moves on. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother." And so you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And you, you've heard this before, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And you know that Jesus, when he was preaching the Beatitudes said, uh, you've heard it said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, right, I tell you, love those who persecute you and who spitefully treat you. And one, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek. Now, when God spoke this in Deuteronomy and in other portions of the law as well, this eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, he was speaking specifically he was speaking specifically in the application of the law of the land. You understand? So quite literally, if you and I got into an argument and I punched you in the mouth and knocked out two of your fronts, okay, and then we went to the judges and you knocked out my front thief, you know, then here's what would happen. Line them up and you get to sock out two of my front teeth. That's fair. That's fair. That's the attitude and that's the spirit. But it became something beyond this. Again, so many times the things that begin in the spirit, then we take hold of them, we allow our flesh to get involved, and we turn it into something completely different. That's basically what religion is. That's basically what religion is. Taking something that was begun and established in the spirit and turning it into something that is orchestrated, that is governed by men. It's never a good thing. And what had happened was this eye for an eye and this tooth for a tooth became something, it became a, a, a root of bitterness. And so if you did something to me, I could not rest until I got you back. It had nothing to do with the law. It became a personal thing. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus is speaking of when he says to his disciples, you have heard it said an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I'm telling you, it should not be that way with you. You ought to always treat your neighbor benevolently, regardless of how they treat you, okay? What God is talking about here in Deuteronomy is in accordance with the law. Now, we back up to verse 14. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. 
uh, the princes, this is uh, Hosea chapter 5, verses 10. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. This gives you an idea. Now, this is the book of, uh, of, of Hosea where he is prophesying the imminent destruction of, of Jerusalem and the people being taken into captivity. And this is God pronouncing this judgment. And he said, the princes of Judah have become like one who move a landmark. And this is how God feels about that. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Why? It's stealing. First of all, it's stealing from your neighbor. But more importantly, in this situation, it's stealing from God. Because Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, who did the land belong to? It belonged to God. It belonged to God. He gave it to the people, and he told them time and time and time and time and time again, you are not to give the land away because it belongs to me. It belongs to me. And so not only was moving borders or stealing your neighbor's land theft from your neighbor, more importantly, it was thievery against God. Deuteronomy 27, 17 says, Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. If a person fears God, then he or she fears to break God's commandment. If it's just about people, there won't be righteousness between any of them because there is no fear there. This is why the great commandment, again, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then your neighbor as yourself. Without the fear of God, we will never treat people correctly. Again, all of the laws that were given to the people to obey had to come from the standpoint you were obeying God's law. I tell people all the time about the ministry. If you get into ministry, if you get into some, some aspect, some, some position of ministry at any point in your life, and at any time it becomes about the people, you are going to burn out and you are going to burn out fast. To be in ministry and to last in ministry, you have to be doing it for some other reason. It has to be you're doing it for the Lord. It has to be about the Lord. Because otherwise, it becomes about me, it becomes about you, and I love you guys, you're awesome, you're wonderful, but only the Lord, only the Lord can keep you going in ministry without you getting burned out, because you're going to see stuff, and things are going to happen to you, and people are going to do things to you, or say things about you, and you're going to get discouraged, and you always have to go back on, I'm doing this for the Lord. I joke around, you know, everybody preach, and you know, Every once in a while, you throw a real stinker, you know what I mean? And you go home and you're like, oh my goodness gracious. You know, and I always know how my message really was, because you know, somebody come up to me and say, that was such an awesome message. That was so good. And then I'll go home and I'll ask my wife, Nikki, how was the message today? And she'll go, mm. <laughs> you know, that's how it really was. <laughs> that's how it really was. And I always joke and say, well, it's all for charity, so you know, what are you going to do? But what I mean by that in a joking way is, I do it for the Lord. I do it for the Lord. So I don't fret and worry anymore about, is it going to be a good message? Is it going to be received by the people? Here's the only thing that matters, is that to the best of my ability, dad's the same thing, to the best of his ability, he preaches the word of God clearly and undivided. That, that's what's important. And then we allow that the Holy Spirit is going to do the work in your heart and in your life. If you're changed or if you're moved because of how I preach a message, 
then I failed you as a pastor. It should be the Lord speaking to your heart by the power of his Holy Spirit through the scriptures that changes you. It always has to be about our relationship with God. Because when it comes to dealing with our neighbor, you are never ever going to be concerned with the well-being of your neighbor as much as you are as your own well-being, right? It's just who we are. If I stood up here with a, with a, with a big fancy camera and took a picture of all of you, right, sitting there, with a big smile, big smile, you know, and took a picture of you, and next week I hung it on the back wall. When you come in and you look at the picture, who's the first person you're going to look for? Simple. Of course you're going to look for yourself. Oh, I don't like my smile in there. Everyone else might look fantastic. Oh, look at the stupid look on my face. You know what I mean? Because ultimately, my fallback nature is worrying about me. Worrying about me. Oh, I need God's help. I so need God's help in order to do the things that he's called me to do. I love the attitude of David. Uh, in Psalm 51.4, David says this, and David was guilty of some pretty heinous crimes. I mean, David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. David was a betrayer. And yet, here's what he says in Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David may have done awful, horrible wrongs to people, but in his mind, the way he saw it was, I have sinned against God. That was the tragedy of it in David's mind. That's why God says, David's a man after my own heart, because people don't normally think like this. The tragedy in David's shortcomings to David was that he had disappointed God, that he had disobeyed God. That's what it always came back to with him. Moving on to verse 15, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. Um, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So first off, first of all, out of the mouth of two or three witness, witnesses, a matter is established. No one, no judge would ever hear a case based on the testimony of one person. It had to be two or three witnesses, and their stories had to line up, it had to corroborate, and they would, do the, they would do the research, and they would make sure, before judgment fell on someone, that it was just. As you study the law of God, one of the things you begin to realize is God never trusted the good intentions of men. He never, ever put stock in the good intentions of men. Well, people are basically good. Right, Gabriel? I mean, they're going to do the right thing to each other. Never! Every time God's giving a law and he's going through this, he always gives these little provide. Now, now he's he's two or three witnesses. Now look. Now look. Because God can see it, right? You know he can see it happening. Oh, okay, okay. All right, God bless you. God bless you. Oh, I'm going to 
to get him executed so fast. Like, and, 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 and people are going to get mad at their neighbor. They're going to get mad at their family member. They're going to get mad at somebody. And they're going to go to the high priest and say, listen, I, he was doing CrossFit on the Sabbath. Okay, nope, you got to go. You know what I mean? Or they're going to go and say, I saw him worshiping a false idol. I saw it. I saw him. He's worshiping a false idol. Just to get that person in trouble. Maybe it would be a capital offense or it could be something smaller. I saw him move a landmark. I saw him, I, I saw him steal something. And they would seek to use God's law to bring their personal vendetta on another person. God saw that coming. He always does this throughout the scriptures. You know, when, remember, when, when the, the, the Pharisees are asking Jesus about divorce, and they say, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Because that's what they believe. You know what I mean? You wake up in the morning, honey, three eggs, over easy, no pork, please. Three eggs, over easy, right? Coffee, black, prano, stat. And she brings it out, and one of them, one of them, she broke the yoke. You could write up a certificate of divorcement. There you go. You're out of here. Best of luck on your next one, right? <laughs> Jesus, they said, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he said, and you know what Jesus says, you've heard it said, writers to be divorced, but I'm telling you this. If a man divorces his wife for any reason other than marital unfaithfulness, he causes her to commit adultery. And the person who marries a woman so divorced commits adultery. And they said, then why did Moses say you shall write her a certificate of divorcement? Remember what Jesus said? Because of the hardness of your hearts. And so God put all of these provisions within the law to protect women from their no-good, lousy husbands. Right? Right? So that was the reason that when you married a woman, you would give a, a dowry to her family that they would hold in trust so that if you ever at some point in time dealt treacherously and put her away, she would take that. It was like a built-in alimony. And there was all these rights and privileges that God laid out for the woman who was not treated correctly. Why did he do that? Why did he say that? God never wanted people to get divorced. God never wanted people to split up. He didn't want these, all of these things to happen, but he knows how we are. He knows how we are. So he put these things into being. He knew exactly how people were going to be. Somebody out there or some people out there, you know, they're going to go in and accuse somebody of something just to get them in trouble because they don't like them. And so he puts this law on them. A false witness was to receive the punishment the accused would have if found, <laughs> if found guilty. Um, Jesus gives ready, remedy for the heart problem, and that's what this is, is a heart problem. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there, you can. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 25, this is what Jesus says. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, I'm going to read that again. If you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that you have something against someone. That's not what he says, is it? If you remember that your brother has something against you, because I'll tell you how my heart is. You know what, Frank? I got a real problem with you. Oh, you know what that sounds like? A personal problem. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I'm sorry that I offend you. <laughs> I don't care. You know what I mean? That's, my, that's the natural heart. You know, I, I, this doesn't mean like I go out and try to be a jerk to someone and then when I hurt their feelings, say I don't care. That's not what I mean. But you know you offend people sometimes and you don't even mean to, right? 
You ever have this happen? Someone's like, well, I'm mad at you. And you're like, you know, I'm trying to find a way to care here. You know what I mean? I don't care. You're mad at me. So what? You know, but that's not what Jesus says, is it? You come to offer your gift at the altar and there you remember somebody has a problem with you. Don't you dare think to come before Jehovah God and make sacrifices to him and show your relationship with him while not caring about your brother who's hurt, whether you did anything wrong or not. First, go and make peace with that brother or sister who has ought with you. Then you come and offer your gift at the altar. You see, Jesus understood the heart of man. He understood exactly how we are. And he understood there's going to be someone out there who needs, who needs someone to be like Jesus in their life. The last thing any of you need in your transactions with me on a relationship basis is for me to be Frank Thomas to you. You know, it's good for certain situations. You know what I mean? I'm good at the parties. You know what I mean? I can make people laugh. I, I, I like to do fun things. I'm good for stuff like that. But at the end of the day, when the, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the chips are down and you need someone in your life, you need me acting like Jesus in your life, not like Frank Thomas. I am only ever going to let you down or act like a jerk to you, sometimes intentionally, sometimes completely unintentionally. It's Jesus Christ huh, that, we need to, that we need to seek to be like. So, uh, let's, let's continue there. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then he says this, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Isn't that interesting? And I wonder about that. Is Jesus insinuating that this person that you're walking along with may not be in the right. Nevertheless, they have the power to be believed by the authority, whether it's just or unjust, and have you thrown in prison. And Jesus says, here's what's important in that situation. Make peace with the guy. Make peace with the guy. This is what the scripture teaches us. I want you to live at peace with men wherever that's possible. As much as within you, you need to be at peace with people. Listen to me. If you have a neighbor that you don't like, or if you have a neighbor that doesn't like you, you don't have the right to not try. As a blood-bought Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have the right to not try. He wants us to be the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. I can't remember what they'll inherit. What, what is it? Listen to the peacemakers, sons of God. They'll be called sons of God. Doesn't that sound about right? God wants us to be peacemakers. All of these laws that, God, that God's giving the people here, if you're a peacemaker or you're a person who understands because of your relationship with God that I need to put people first, you're not going to move boundaries. You're not going to bring false testimony uh, against your neighbor. Jesus' commandment to us is to head this kind of thing uh, off at the pass or to nip it in the bud. Here's the thing, the godly treatment of people requires humility and a heart for the Lord. Humility and a heart for the Lord. Uh, humility is not easy to come by. James 4, 1 to 2 says this, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot attain, you fight and war yet you do not have because you do not ask. What James is saying here 
is that you, if you have an ongoing feud with somebody, it's because of carnality in your life. Now, you may have somebody who just doesn't like you. Maybe it's because of your testimony. Maybe it's because of certain things that you believe. Maybe it's because of certain ways you live your life, and they don't like you for it. There's nothing you can do about that. If you're living your life to the best of your ability to serve God, there's nothing you can do about that, except not feud back, not war back. James makes it very clear. If there's any of that going on in your life where you're at war with someone and you're fighting with someone, and, and one, of the, one of the best messages I ever heard on marriage and the name of the message was this. You ready? Super uplifting. Somebody has to die. <laughs> Wives are like, no problem. No problem. I, it's a miracle. I know who needs to die. Somebody needs to die. If you can't get along with your spouse, if you're fighting with your spouse, it's because you are in the flesh. I understand. You may be completely justified in the situation. Husbands, you may be completely right in the argument. But what matters, what matters is, what matters is, regardless of the situation, how you treat your bride. And wives, what matters in the situation is how you treat the husband that God has given you. And you understand, it's not about me. Me and Nikki, we understood first year, first year, like somebody's really going to die. Really going to die, right? It was up in the air for a minute there. You know, maybe I'll go to jail today. I don't know. And we realized, we realized Frank and Nikki don't go together. On paper, it looked okay before the wedding. You know what I'm saying? And then you really realize the practical application of it, we were like gasoline and a match. And the, you wouldn't believe it. If I showed you a video of it, you wouldn't believe it. I hate you. You know, I thought God, I, the devil played a trick on me. You know, you know, I married one of his servants, you know. <laughs> uh, woo, happy Valentine's Day. You know what I'm saying? Happy Valentine's. That's what I think about now. We realized very quickly, unless I can see Nikki the way Jesus sees her and love her with his love, this isn't going to happen. And so now, and I'll tell you what, I joke, I joke about my wife and will continue to do so until one of us dies, right? <laughs> However, she is way more like Jesus than I will ever be. I can tell you this. I'm not, this is not brownie points here. She enacts that role of Christ in our relationship way more than I do. She puts up with a lot, <laughs> with a lot, you know. Although one time she did tell me that I was like a 12-year-old in a 300-pound clown suit. <laughs> she actually said those words to me one time. And it was so funny, I couldn't get angry, you know what I mean? I was like, I am like a 12-year-old in a 300-pound clown suit, you know. But she is, <laughs> she is so much like Jesus in our, in, our, in our home. How she treats the children, absolutely, absolutely. And I know you guys, you, uh, we had our marriage conference and we sat here with all the guys. The only thing I said to the guys was, you are so lucky. You so don't deserve her, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
We have beautiful, wonderful, awesome wives, and she reflects that love of Christ because when I don't deserve it, when I'm not being a good husband, when I'm not being everything that she needs me to be, she still does what I need her to do. It's unbelievable that she does that. That is the key to a successful marriage. And what's more than that, what's more than that, is that is a key to any successful relationship with other people in Jesus Christ. It can't be about us or them. It can't be about who's right and who's wrong. I mean, think of the wars that churches have gotten in over... Now listen, false doctrine that doesn't line up with Scripture, we don't, we don't go for that, right? We don't stand for that. We take a stand against that. But we don't hate the people who are, who are teaching some sort of false doctrine. We don't hate those people. We speak the truth, but we speak it in love. I can't believe the things that Christians hate each other over. You, do you teach out of the King James Bible? Or do you teach out of the newly inspired version? You know, you know what I mean? Which, which, or do you believe in eternal security? Do you, are you believing predestination? Or do you believe in free will choice? You know what I mean? Which one is it? Which one is it? <laughs> you know, wait a second. Wait a second. Are you post-trib? Are you pre-trib? Are you mid-trib? Are you all millennial? Which one are you? I'm pre-trib. It's okay if you're not. I'll explain it to you on the way up. You know what I mean? It's okay. It's all good. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, you got people in your family that you're like, hey, that's my cousin. And then, and then other people, they're like, is that, your, is that person in your family? And you're like, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. But God has called us to love. God has called us to love. If we can't correctly love each other in the body, in our homes, how are we going to love the people out on the streets? How are we going to love the people? I mean, I, I, what's, you know what, what, what just has absolutely appalled me in the last couple of years? It's not what I see happening in the cities across America. That's, that's man at their natural best. You understand this? What has appalled me is the Christian response to those people. Well, why don't we just get out a flamethrower and burn them all? You know what I mean? Just like Jesus, right? And I love it. There's even an account like that in the scriptures, the sons of thunder, right? James and John, they're going through a Samaritan town and they don't want Jesus to come in there. And they're like, that's fine. Hey, Jesus, want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them all to a cinder? And they're like, Jesus is like, you don't even know what heart is in you. You don't even know what's going on in your own heart. That's the natural state of man. It's appalled me to see Christians, because of their patriotism, hate people who don't know Jesus Christ as though they had any other option in their life than to walk according to the flesh without knowing Jesus Christ. We're the ones that know him. And the love that we show to one another and the love that we show to people out there ought to reflect that. There is no political line. There better not be any racial lines. Those don't exist in the kingdom of God. They don't exist. And those people may hate you for what you believe, but you have no right to hate them back. Jesus Christ is our example in all of these things. And finally, and I'm going to stop here, swift and impartial judgment 
uh, is required to keep evil at bay. When a society begins to tolerate criminal behavior, that society falls apart. Nowadays, it doesn't matter what crimes a person has committed. It only matters whether or not the public decides that they were treated properly, and the authorities, not the person breaking the law, is the one who falls under the deepest scrutiny. This is the result of a society that has rejected God for a couple of reasons. First, our leaders don't fear God, and so wickedness and injustice abounds. The people don't trust their leadership, nor do they themselves seek to live righteously. And of course, we're in disarray. Of course, we're in chaos. Do you trust your government today? What are you laughing? What's wrong with you people? I trust them implicitly <laughs> for everything. You know, remember what it was that Ronald Reagan said, the, the most feared words in the English, English language, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> we don't trust them. Okay, if you're a Republican, you don't trust any of the Democrats. If you're the Democrats, you don't trust any of the Republicans. Not only do you not trust them, they're evil. They're evil. Let me explain something to you. They're all evil. By definition, biblical definition, they're all evil. I'm not saying they're up there worshiping Molech like on some of these conspiracy sites. You know what I mean? What I'm saying is, is there is no desire in the leadership of this nation to honor God. We used to have the Ten Commandments in every courtroom. And at the point in time when the nation began to say, rip those out, we don't want to see those words, you better know at that point in time, it's all over but the crying. You don't want to believe in the biblical principles of God. You don't want to believe in the Judeo-Christian principles upon which Western civilization was founded. Fine, throw it out and see what happens. And that's exactly what we're experiencing. But do not countenance it. Don't countenance it. It ain't Nancy Pelosi's fault. Okay? It's not the turtle's fault. It's not Biden's fault. It's not Trump's fault. It's America's fault. And all the patriotism in the world or all the wokeness in the world ain't going to fix it. So what's the Christian response? This is what you do need to worry about. What should you do today? What should I do today? We should live according to the word of God. We should love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we should love our neighbor as ourself. Amen? Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we're so thankful for uh, your love and your grace, Lord, for your compassion and for your forgiving heart and nature towards us, Father, when we fall so far short of the mark set for us by Jesus, Lord. And we don't love people the way that we should. And we don't see the world the way that you see the world, Father. Uh, we see it according to our own eyes and not yours. And we get way off in the buckwheat Lord, we pray and ask, Lord, that you would give us uh, your eyes to see, Father, and your heart to feel and to treat people, Father, the way Jesus treated them. We ask, Lord God, that that would become preeminent, preeminent in our lives, Lord, and, and the proof would be in the lives that we live. The proof would be in the relationships that we have, that that is what would attract people to the gospel message, Father, not our many words, not our knowledge of the scripture, Lord, but what would attract them is the simple love uh, that we show for everyone, Father, that that would be a hallmark of what we're all about, what this church is about, what our homes are about, what our marriages are about, Father, how we are not only here and at home, but at work and at play, Father, would be a reflection of you. Lord, thank you 
for who you are. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for calling us. Have your way in us, Lord, we pray. And I pray that you'd bless these people, that you'd watch over them, that you'd protect them, that you'd cause your face to shine upon them, to be gracious unto them, Lord, that you'd give them traveling mercies heading back to home uh, and wherever they may go this, this day or this week, Father. Bless them, I pray. Fill them with your spirit, Lord, and use them to show people Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.